So I stopped drinking coffee a month ago. I've been a coffee drinker for years and years. Two, three, four, five, six cups a day. Always large, always by my side. I chug one down and I get another. Then I chug another one down and I get another. I could be home. I could be at Starbucks or Pete's or Swirl Cafe. And it got to the point where I wasn't sure whether I could actually write without coffee. But finally, I stopped. And now I have a book due in a month and I'm staring at a blank screen and I have an answer. Nope, I can't write well without coffee. So my next book will probably suck, but at least my hands have stopped shaking. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Wallace Matthews, the former, and here I go, Newsday boxing writer and columnist, New York Post sports columnist, 1050 ESPN radio host, ESPN.com Yankees beat writer, New York Times baseball and boxing writer, New York Daily News sports columnist, and for my money, the baddest motherfucker in sports media. And today, we're going to talk specifically about being a bad motherfucker in sports media and how to stand your ground as a journalist. This is episode number 225. Let's sling some Yang. Is oh, this ahead. uncensored? Do we just say what Yeah, no, doing? 100%. Wait, I love, in fact, I'm going to start right now and say, well, you just asked me first question, is this uncensored? And I would, um, I would expect nothing less from a New York guy and a New York columnist. In fact, I'm offended. I'm fucking offended that you would ask me if this is uncensored. I don't know. <laughs> fucking ain't right. Man. I am, I'm uncensored. So you know that. And I'm just going to say what I want. And I hope nobody gets offended. I'm great with that. And I just want to say before a uh, couple, not that long ago, half hour ago, I texted a, uh, a mutual friend of ours, Mark Kriegel. I asked him about you. And I want to tell you what he wrote. He said, um, I love the guy. The most natural New York columnist there was. Wrote swiftly to the point. Tough guy stuff was really him. Not an adopted posture. A fucking shame he doesn't have a paper. But then again, maybe the papers don't deserve him. And then he said, and when I really, really needed help, he was there. He's a wonderful guy. Those were all lies. I paid him to say that. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> Check is in the mail. So your resume is, it oozes New York at a really good time. You, uh, you covered boxing or a columnist in Newsday from 83 to 94 you were a columnist at the New York Post from 94 to 02. You were an ESPN radio host from 02 to 05. You were a Newsday columnist from 05 to 2010. You covered the Yankees for ESPN from 2010 to 2016. You freelanced from the New York Times, 1718. Back at the Daily News, 2000, excuse me, first time Daily News, 2018 to 19. Yahoo Sports, 2019. And now you don't write for a paper and you don't write for a website. Do you feel like this business has left guys like you behind to a certain degree? I don't know about that. Well, maybe, you know, it's like any other business. You do age out, unfortunately, you know. Um, and, you know, listen, I'll tell you the truth. I've been working for the Department of Health in New York State for the past 15 months on COVID, right? I'm, I'm working as a contact tracing supervisor. I have a team of people who, you know, make phone calls constantly, um, you know, to people who have been exposed to COVID. I love doing it. But the truth of the matter is, papers want younger guys than me. They want younger guys than me. They want guys they can pay less than they would have to pay me. I mean, they know my salary history. I recently called the Daily News just to, you know, as a feeler, like, hey, what's going on? You know, I see that you guys lost a columnist and Post has hired Ian O'Connor. It was terrific. Any chance I can come back and said, you know what? We can hire three college kids for the price we can pay for you. That's a, a direct quote from the editor. And I said, you know why? I can't argue with you. You're absolutely right. I mean, yeah, I think you do age out in this business. And when I started at Newsday in 1983, and I was a kid, I saw the way they were treating guys like George Usher, Tim Moriarty, Bob Waters. These guys were in their late 50s, early 60s. And at the time, I was more than happy with it because I wanted their jobs. Right. But now, you know, I see now it's happening to me. I mean, it's just the way this business goes. It's interesting because we always think when we're young, we always think that like, ah, I'm better than these guys or like they're just old timers and blah, blah, blah. And then you realize, like, I don't know if you disagree with that, but you realize there was a lot more to the job than you knew. And like, oh, yeah, you thought, <laughs> oh, yeah, like you thought you were this, you know, I, I mean, I can speak for me. I thought I was like this great writer and oh, I'm so much better than these guys. And then you don't see 
the connections they made, the reporting they did, the time they put in. Absolutely. I thought I was the shit. Absolutely. Until I, <laughs> until I actually had to do it. And I remember when Newsday promoted me to columnist, I guess it was like 91 or 92. And I had lunch with Steve Jacobson, who'd been the columnist there like forever. And I asked him a really dumbass question. I said, Jake, how long is it going to take me to become a columnist? And you know what he said? The rest of your life. <laughs> and, and you know what? I think he was exactly right because a columnist who's not evolving, who's not learning, who's not getting better at what he does, who's been doing it for 30 years and says, fuck, I got this thing down, is worthless, absolutely worthless. And I think I, I've learned a lot. I'm still learning a lot. And if I ever do get a chance to do a column again, I mean, there's so many experiences I've had in contact tracing over the past 15 months that I think will make me better at it. And uh, he was right. It, writing a column is something you work at your whole life. Wait, so I'm fascinated by a million things, but there's one place I want to start and almost the reason I brought you here, which is, so when I was covering baseball at Sports Illustrated, I would see you in clubhouses, you know, Yankees or Mets or whatever. And I always thought like, that guy is one badass motherfucker. I said that to Mike. Did, did you really? Did you really? hundred percent. I was like, this guy. We never spoke, you and I. We never no. spoke. But I always watch you and I was like, this guy just like I would shuffle around clubhouses and I would pick my spots and I'd be like, oh, hey, Mr. Piazza, do you have a minute? You know, blah, blah, blah. And you were like, Mike, I need five minutes. You know, like <laughs> and we we just unintimidated. Was it just zero intimidation? Yeah, it was unintimidated. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I'm not I'm not really that outgoing in terms of like, um, you know, in, in social situations. I'm, I'm not one for small talk. And I, and I really envy a lot of baseball writers. When I became the Yankee beat writer, I'd see guys could just get into like really easy conversations with the players, about their families, about their lives, about a TV show they watch. That's not me. I would go over and say, hey, I got a question for you. And it would be, you know, a baseball question or something related to what I was going to write. But I never, never was good at just schmoozing them, you know, and I always envied the guys that were able to do that. But I also realized that I had to get past, you know, I don't know if it's shyness or hesitancy, whatever it was, social awkwardness. I had to get past that. And the way to get past that was to be aggressive, you know, let, not let them know that it's really hard for me to walk up to you right now and ask you this question. Just fucking walk up and ask the question. So were you nervous walking up asking a question? Sometimes, you know, what would really make me nervous? I always wonder, is this a dumb question? Is the guy going to laugh at me or is he going to, you know, shoo me away or ridicule me? So I would a lot of times go over the questions over. And you probably did this too, yeah. over and over in my head. And um, I would um, try to pre-think, like, what could this guy's objection to this question be? Or how could he put me off or just give me like a one word answer? How can I disarm his objection? And I would always, I would go through, all right, this is how I have to ask the question. No, this is the way I have to ask the question. This is how I have it. You know, I, I would think, all right, I know you're going to say this. So I'll say it first. So you can't say it. And then ask you the question. And this is the kind of shit that I would go through before, before I went up to anybody. So if someone gave you shit, was your, like my initial instinct, if someone gave me shit, like the John Rocker thing, just as an example, my reaction is to take two steps back. I always felt like your reaction was to take a step forward, which yeah, I that's that's that that's absolutely true. That's just my nature. But did Rocker give you? Did you like get into a thing with Rocker on that interview? Yeah, later on he was not happy and he was in my face. Oh, I'll because, bet. I'll bet. <laughs> I just kind of took it. But you're saying like when it was all right. Perfect example. I even have this in front of me. In October of 2000, the New York Mets are playing in the World Series, and the New York, you wrote a column. This is after Piazza had the. Uh, it was the bat throwing thing with Clemens. The bat throwing thing with Clemens, where Clemens got the bat, splinter bat, and threw it back to Piazza. The headline on the next day's post on the back page was Meek the Mets. And <laughs> I love the post. Yeah, yeah, very good. And there was a uh, there was a, a column where you really dumped on the Mets. And the next day you walk into the Mets clubhouse and Todd Pratt was a big guy, Mets catcher. Really big guy, two nipple rings, too. Was waiting for you, right? Oh, yeah. No, well, what happened was that I walked in. It's funny because, you know, writers can be this way. All these guys came running up to me all excited. Todd Pratt's going to kick your ass. Todd Pratt's going to kick your ass. And I was like, OK, he's going to kick my ass. So you're right. I do take a step forward. I'm, I am a, a prick that way. So I walked up to his locker and he wasn't there. So I sat on his fucking stool and waited for him. And he came out and he looked at me and said, who are you? And I said, I'm the guy who's asked you. You tell everybody you're going to kick. So he says, come in the back with me. So he takes me like into the off limits area at Chase Stadium and everybody's like, ooh, ah, thinking that I'm going to get the shit kicked out of me back there. I go back there. And honestly, we had a wonderful talk. We really did. He never threatened me. 
he said, you know, I didn't like what you wrote here in this picture because he was in the picture is the problem. The column had a picture of a bunch of Mets standing there, like kind of watching passively. And the cut line was just ripped them like, you know, fight, you know, toothless Mets stand and watch, which, of course, I didn't write. So I explained to him, A, I didn't write the headline. I didn't choose the photo. And your name is never mentioned in this column. I said, you know, I wrote what I wrote and I believe it. But there's not one point where I singled you out. And he actually said, you know, I didn't realize that you I thought you guys wrote everything. I thought you chose the picture. I said I didn't do any of that. And by the end of the conversation, Jeff, he was like, man, you and I are cool. Anything you need, you got it. Three years later, when I was doing the ESPN radio show and he was now with the Phillies, I needed a guest. I called him up. He came on. I mean, and we were, we were cool after that. There was never a problem between us. He was great. I liked him. Smart guy. All right. So what is it in your DNA that makes you sit on Todd Pratt's stool as opposed to tiptoeing <laughs> up? I really mean that. Or, or I'm just a fucking, I'm a belligerent prick. I really am. I mean, I, I you know, listen, you probably know I was a fighter. You could, you, we're doing a Zoom call here, which you, your listeners can't see, but you see there are, go, there are gloves there back there on my wall. Mm-hmm. All right. I used to be a fighter. I've always had this belligerent streak in me. And I am, I do have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. And if somebody says, this guy is going to kick your ass, I'm like, you know, come and do it. Come and do it. That's the way I am. I mean, and you know what? I would rather get the shit beat out of me than walk away. I really would. I would be embarrassed to walk away. I would not be embarrassed to get the shit kicked out of me. That's awesome. I asked you guys you had conflict with, and um, you mentioned Kenny Lofton. I immediately remembered it. And I want to wait before I ask you about this. I just want to say. One of the worst guys I ever covered as a baseball writer was Kenny Lofton. He was an asshole. Oh, good. I'm glad I'm not alone. In this. Oh, terrible. Wait, so what is your Kenny Lofton story? All right. It, it, this is partially my fault. The night before, this is when he was a Cleveland Indian. And the night before, Albert Bell was out in the outfield at Yankee Stadium, and the fans were throwing things. They were throwing quarters at him or something and chanting some shit or something. So now, of course... Me and all the Yankee beat writers and everybody, all the columnists now go to the Indians dugout before the game to try to get Albert Bell. And he's, you know, and he blows us off. So like an asshole, I turn to a, another reporter next to me and say, maybe if I throw a quarter at him, he'll pay attention. And Kenny Lofton hears it. So he jumps into my face. Do you hear what he said? And he's got a high, shrill voice, which is fucking hilarious, right? Do you hear what he said? He said he's going to throw a quarter at you, right? So he, he actually takes a step toward me. And I didn't realize who he was because I didn't cover a lot of baseball back then, right? right? So I actually turned to the guy next to and said, who is this guy? So Kenny Lofton says, yelling, who the fuck am I? Who the fuck are you? <laughs> it was actually very funny. So I, you know, I, I actually thought we were going to fight. So I, I turned and I handed my notebook off to the other guy because I thought I, I have to defend myself. I don't know what's going to happen here. And he starts yelling. He took, he handed off his notebook and he ran to Mike Hargrove, who was the manager. Right. He like ran behind him. And I didn't make a, a threatening move at all. I did was hand off the notebook because if this guy's going to punch me, I would like to have both my hands. Right. Um, so he runs to Mike Hargrove and starts you know, screaming in this high, shrill voice. And I, I will tell you this. I didn't know Mike Hargrove at all, but he, he's a terrific guy. He comes. He walks up to me. He puts his arm around me like we're all buddies. He goes, why don't you and me just take a walk over in the Yankee dugout? I said, that's a very good idea. Mike. And we did. And that was the end of it. Then the funny part is. As Hargrove is leading me away, I hear Albert Bell yelling behind me, fuck you, fuck you. Oh, wow. <laughs> now, one of the funniest days in the history of, of my career. Would you have been, again, you seem unafraid by almost every athlete. Like Albert Bell was the one guy who used to scare the living shit out of all of us. <laughs> I didn't want to fight him. I wanted to talk to him. What are the lessons from your career about approaching athletes? Is it better to walk up to a guy confident chest out a little bit or is it better? To well, you know what? I learned a lot. I got to be honest with you, you know, as a columnist before I was a beat writer, you know, so I really didn't have a lot of experience with developing relationships with players because I wasn't there. You know, I dropped in for a day, you know, and I see this little, you know, so I look through the Venetian blind and see a little slit of the season and then go write a column like I was an expert on, you know, I mean, that's basically what columnists do. So, you know, I've been a boxing beat writer, but that's completely different. I've never been with a team. When I became the Yankee beat writer for ESPN in 2010, I learned an entirely different way of doing things. And I, I, Jeff, I honestly, I spent time, and as I told you, I'm not good at small talk. I'm really not, you know, that outgoing in those kind of situations. But I made it a point to walk around the clubhouse every single day and say hello to every single guy that was there. Just so they knew I was there, so they get used to me. 
you know, and if I learned something about them, I could bullshit a little bit. You know, I knew one guy liked UFC. I knew another guy liked Michigan basketball. I know this guy liked this. I knew this guy had two daughters. You know, I would learn that stuff. And this, I think this made me a lot better at my job because I understood these guys now. Before that, I was just dropping in. I mean, columnists, I hate to say it because I love writing a column, but it's a lot of hit and run shit. It really is. I mean, you don't know. You know, I drop in one game out of 162 and I decide I know exactly what's happening with the Yankees. Let me now, you know, let me come down from the mountain with the tablets, you know. Um, and being a beat writer taught me that that's not the way you do it. And not only that, it gives you more perspective. You know, like, you know why things happen. Columnists generally don't know why the fuck anything happens. They just react to what they see. Is being a columnist a little bit bullshit? Oh, without a doubt. It is. How so? I mean, when you're the baseball beat writer, and I never, I've never been a beat writer for any other team sport, but you're there from February 15th to October 1st, and maybe long, if you're covering the Yankees, generally longer, mm -hmm. right? So you're spending nine hours a day with these guys, six days a week for basically nine months, Okay. So I know everything about them. And if something goes wrong, and if a guy's not performing well, I know why. The columnist doesn't know why. He shows up. I show up. A-Rod goes 0 for 4 and strikes out with the bases loaded in a game-winning situation. We're going to fucking rip him. He's a waste of time. The beat writer knows A-Rod's been nursing a sore shoulder for a week. Or, you know, he, he can't hit this particular pitcher. The columnists don't know that. They just come in and they, they – and I'm saying that the best ones do. But – the general run-of-the-mill columnist is a knee-jerk guy or, or a woman. Just drops in, takes a look at the game, and says, okay, here's what I'm right. The beat writer has a little bit more perspective. Now, I mean, I think you would agree with me on this, that beat writers have become more opinionated now in their, in their work. Mm. And I think especially the internet wants, you know, that kind of a slant. I mean, beat, writers based, beat writer and columnist are pretty much interchangeable these days. Right. And I think it's a, better, it's a better column. Now, I think a lot of beat writers – practice access journalism and don't want to, you know, piss off their favorites, their go-to guys, you know, so they're going to be a little bit easier on them on some other guys. But if you're doing it right, a beat writer can actually write a better column than columns. Uh, you covered when you were the Yankee beat writer, you had a, uh, you had A-Rod and you had Jeter. One is um, incredibly boring, but great. And, you know, a lot of integrity. And one guy is a total fraud and, but you know, whatever, I guess <laughs> as a beat writer, who's better for you? Let me tell you a story. I had a really good relationship with Alex, and I don't know why. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because this is Alex. Alex is a star fucker. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm a star, but he knew I root for, I wrote for ESPN. Mm -hmm. Okay? So he wanted to be on my good side. So he'd always come over and talk about boxing, ask me about what was it like to cover Tyson? What do you think of Floyd Mayweather? Do you like this? You know, like ways to like ingratiate himself with me. So, um, and Jeter doesn't give a shit if you like him or don't like him. <laughs> and he really does not at all. But so one day I'm sitting in the, in the dugout by myself, taking some notes and I have no need for Alex or anything. And he suddenly sits down like right next to me. I'm like, Hey, what's up? He goes, man, I got to ask you a question. He goes, uh, who's your favorite guy to talk to in this clubhouse? So I know what the fuck he wants me to say. <laughs> and you know, if I, if I really had balls, Jeff, all right, I'm going to really disappoint you right now. I would have said Jeter. <laughs> I would have said Jeter. Right. But of course, I fell into the trap. I said, you, man, you know, and, and I'm, honestly, Alex was a good guy to talk to because he would, not on the record, always off the record, he would break down everything that happened in the game. If one of his teammates made an error, he'd say, hey, you know, what the hell happened with this guy? And he'd say, well, you know, he took a step to his right when he should have actually gone this way. You know, he'd really be able to break it down for you. Don't say I said this, but this is, you know, go write this. This is what he did. So he was good that way. But so he asked me, you know, who's your favorite guy? I say, you are, man. You know, you, you break down the game for me. He goes, how's Derek to talk to? <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, I don't even have to go any further than that. You, I mean, you know, you can put this guy on the couch, but I don't think we need to. It was obviously, you know, he was angling to hear that he was better to talk to than, than Derek. But I will <laughs> say this about Derek. I'll say this about Derek. That fucker knew his role as a captain. He would stand in front of that locker every single game, win or lose, answer every question and at the end when when there was a lull if they stopped ans asking questions he would look around to everybody right he would go like this you know and i'm, I'm nodding my head now he'd look at everybody he goes do you have what you need does everybody have what you need and then he would leave he would not leave until he knew everybody had asked a question alex would do three minutes and say good night guys thanks guys and walk out even if you still had 22 questions 
So I, I must say, you know, in terms of professionalism, Derek was much better. You do most guys kind of do a reverse the, of what you did. You were a columnist, then you decide, then you became a beat writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This may sound like this is a dumb way of phrasing it, but you understand. Like, did you feel like you were slumming, or did you feel like it was the greatest thing ever? No, no, I loved it. I loved it. I thought it was a great challenge. And actually, I got to be honest with you. I mean, maybe this is I don't know. I don't know what it's my thing, but I felt like I hadn't really paid my dues to become a columnist. Quite honestly, I mean, I'd done boxing for about ten years, and I know I was good at it, and uh, but that's all I did. You know, I did some sidebars on baseball and football and some other stuff, but I really didn't have the background that these other guys had. And I really felt when they, I mean, honestly, when I was first asked, you know, would you come to ESPN and be a Yankee beat writer? Geez, you know, I was 50 some odd years old. It was 2010, so I was 53. It's like, do I really want to fucking go on the road now, you know, with a baseball team and all the beat writers are like 20 years younger than me. And, but then I thought about it and I, you know what? I never really paid my dues. I've never done this. I would like to try this. And I loved it. I must tell you, it was the most fun that I had. I mean, it's difficult. It's, it's physically grueling, but I loved hanging out with the other beat writers. We all got along great. I loved covering the team. I love the baseball season because it's like a daily soap opera, you know, like, and, and you feel like, especially the Yankees, if you miss a day, you feel like you missed a week of graduate school, you know? Um, so I really enjoyed doing it. And I really, and I saw, I started to see the fraudulence of the column, basically. Because, you know, this is the real shit. Here I am now. Now I understand what goes on here. Now I know all the coaches. I, I mean, I had a guy, Rob Thompson, lovely guy. He was the bench coach for Girardi. He friggin' mapped out the Jeter flip play, you know, from the, from the Oakland series in 2001. Because everybody thinks, oh, I was lucky. He just happened to be in the right place. No. He showed me exactly what, if the ball is hit here, this guy goes here, this guy goes here, this guy goes here, Jeter's exactly where he's supposed to be. You know, like, this is stuff that you wouldn't know as a columnist. And you're sitting there, oh, like, how the hell did Jeter do that? He's amazing. No, this is a fucking play that they work on. You can only learn that by being a beat writer, being around and have the trust of the coaches. So one thing that's interesting about that is, um, like, you look at, just as an example, the 2012 Yankees, their catcher, Russell Martin, was 29, Teixeira was 32, Cano was 29, Jeter was 38, A-Rod 36, Ruo Abanya's 40, but then you had, 30, you know, 31. Th all these guys are basically 20 years younger than you. The right. the coaches are all your age. And I was wondering, like, close, well, yeah. you know, in the age range. Is A little right. younger, yeah. Does that, does that, coming from that perspective, number one, do you think it makes the players a little more perhaps respectful of you? And number two, does it Definitely. help that maybe the coaches view you almost as a contemporary as opposed to junior? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah, but, but listen, you know, one thing about baseball coaches, they love to bullshit with reporters. They love it. They love to tell you the inside stuff. They like to get the names in the paper when they can, if it's not going to hurt them. Uh, one thing that really helps with the Yankees is like, if you've seen talking to Reggie, because Reggie is like so revered and, you know, Reggie and I got along great because I've known him for a long time and that always helps. Um, but I never felt like a real age gap between me and the players because we have so many of the, the players are fight fans. So we had that in common. You know, I mean, when, when Mayweather and Pacquiao fought, what was that, in, uh, in 2010? or I don't even know when the hell it was. It was a shitty fight, 2015. I was able to go around the locker room and get 25 guys to predict the fight because they were all into it. Right. And after that, they would always come up to me and say, hey, what do you think of this fight? You know, so now we've got common ground, even though, you know, I'm 53 and you're 26. You know, they want to know what, what I think about a fight. So that's cool. So that helped a lot. But, yeah, I think the coaches gravitate to the older guys. You know, George King, who's, you know, a couple of months older than me. Although, listen, I don't care if he hears this or not. He looks like he's 10 years older than me. There's no friggin' doubt. 20, he looks like he's 20. 15 years older than me. But the coaches love him because he's, he's a contemporary, you know, and they feel like he's been around since Babe Ruth, which he may have been. Here's a weird question. And he's one of my favorite guys to bring up in talks of New York media from this era. I didn't know Lupica personally. Um, when I would see him from afar, I could not stand him. I thought he was arrogant and I thought he was a douchebag and I thought he treated other writers shitty. I mean, we're both Mark Kriegel friends. We know he did to Kriegel, yep. Lisa Olson, on and on and on. There's just a long yep. list of guys he was bad to. Yep. All that being said, was he good for New York newspaper? I actually enjoyed reading him, uh, you know, when he first started out. But, you know, I mean, he basically put New York Newsday out of business, so I can't really forgive him for that. But the thing about him that really annoys me, you know, and he's got talent, but he's such a douche, such an overbearing douche. He, um, 
his column is performance art in the press box. Have you ever seen his, his routine? How do you mean? He'll come in and he'll fucking start just trying out wines on everybody. And like, you want to tell him to shut the fuck up. Well, you know, we're, we're trying to, I'm trying to work. I'm trying to watch a game. He'll come up and you know, he's trying out lines for tomorrow. He'll say, George, what do you think of this? You know, just shut the fuck up. Sit your five foot two ass down and shut up. I mean, it's just so annoying. And, um, and I do know personally that twice I was this close to being hired by the daily news in the nineties and both times he put the kibosh on it. So yes, I know what he did to Mark. I know what he did to Lisa. I know he's done to a lot of people, but what he fucking did to me, I don't forgive him for Forget like that. We we're not fans. Like, does that thing still exist? I mean, is that basically Stephen A. Smith in 2021? That sort of persona? I, I don't I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I've known Stephen A. for a long time. I know him since he's a kid. You know, he used to hang around the fights. He liked fights. Um, and he was always a nice, respectful young guy. You know, he's about 15 years younger than me. And uh, I mean, it was clear that he was ambitious. But I don't know. I've, I've never heard stories about him treating people the way this other guy does. Right. I mean, look, he's, he said some horrible things on the air. He said some embarrassing things that would get lesser people fired. No doubt about it. Uh, he's he's revealed his ignorance on a lot of topics. I think, you know, he actually thought like a football team could miss a field goal on third down and then try it again on fourth down. I mean, you know, this kind of shit should be career enders for most people. But I've never heard, you know, anybody say that he has abused, you know, underlings or anything like that. You start as a boxing writer. You, in many ways, came up with a young Mike Tyson. I have a, uh, I have a piece in front of me here from the, uh, I'll just read it. I have two of them, actually. But here we go. January 12th, 1986, Newsday. Tyson 16-0 with first round KO. Your lead was, it was in Albany. Mike Tyson was fighting in Albany, New York. It was Mike Tyson's sweet 16 party, but there was really nothing sweet about it. Anybody see that truck that hit me? Dave Jacko asked. He certainly didn't. Tyson battered and brutalized Jacko at the Albany Convention Center last night sending him down three times in the first round of a scheduled 10-rounder for the 16th consecutive knockout of his unblemished nine-month-old career. I believe I can be anybody in the world, said Tyson, who tied Rocky Marciano's record of 16 consecutive KOs. That's fucking Mike- embarrassing. I'll tell you why, because at that point, I was, a, I was a willing passenger on the Mike Tyson kick-your-fucking-ass-out express. Why is that bad? Because I should have known better. Dave Jacko was an aluminum siding mechanic who fought like as a side hustle. This guy could not fucking fight. I remember it like it was yesterday. This guy had a bad body. You wouldn't take it to the beach. This guy was in there to get the shit kicked out of him. But I was so enamored of Tyson. I mean, I thought Tyson was going to be like my Ali, you know, like Cosell and Ali. I thought Tyson was going to be my guy. You know, <clears throat> this is the thing that's going to bring me to the, to the heights because I'm going to cover Mike Tyson and we're going to be Ali and Cosell or Joe Lewis and Barney Nagler or Jack Dempsey and Grantland Rice. You know, this is going to be it. And I fucking, I should have realized this guy's just knocking out stiffs and it doesn't mean a fucking thing. Wait, that's really interesting. First of all, I just want to say Dave Jacko now uh, owns a bar in Florida. More importantly, wasn't Tyson your Ali in a lot of ways? I'm not saying he was Ali as a fighter, but wasn't he kind of your Ali? Yeah, he was. He was. He was. He Yeah, he, he certainly didn't live up to the billing. But sometimes when I look at those old clips, Jeff, I, I'm kind of embarrassed at how long it took me to start to realize that there was less to this guy than met the eye. All right, here comes this guy, and he has his amazing backstory, Customato and the Pigeons in New York and the Catskills, and he's knocking guys out in 28 seconds and blah, 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 blah. And you're covering him, and he's a great freaking story, and he's exciting, and he's crazy, and the whole thing. And at that point, he's very easy to deal with, too. He's, he's extremely outgoing and, and friendly and, and modest. But the truth is, you look at any great fighter, their first 15, 20 fights, they're all against bums. And they don't mean a goddamn thing. And the thing about Tyson was it took me a while to realize that once somebody stood up to him, see, I, I, I was, I was completely seduced by the whole image, you know, the, the, the no sock, the, the no robe, and he's coming in, he's a big muscular dude and everybody's scared of him. But the truth is these were handpicked guys. I mean, some of them literally shit their pants, you know, in the ring when they were fighting this guy, I, I, I made too much of it. Okay, and this is going to be part of the, of the book proposal I'm writing. I made too much of it. I, I was wrong. I was wrong. Yes, he was a great puncher. Yes, he had a terrific backstory. Yes, he had an intimidating persona. But I mean, does he stand up against the great heavyweights of all time? Let's talk about it. Did Muhammad Ali ever quit against guys like Danny Williams and Kevin McBride? Did Joe Lewis ever bite off an opponent's ear because he was getting beat up? You know, did Jack Dempsey get knocked out 
five out of this or all six of his losses get knocked out and quit two of them? No, none of these things happen. Those are truly great fighters. This guy was a, a great phenomenon, but as a fighter, a lot less than what he appears to be. Wait, so 31 years ago, you were at, you were covering Tyson Buster Douglas in Japan. You were one of the American fighters at that fight, correct? I was not. I was not. I was not. And here's the reason why, because I'm too goddamn honest. <laughs> My paper had sent me to Japan to cover Tyson and Tony Tubbs. Tyson knocked them out in two rounds. I think it cost the paper like 10 grand because at the time, Japan was ridiculously expensive. So now he's going to fight Buster Douglas in Tokyo and sports editor calls me and says, listen, give me an honest answer. Can Tyson lose to this guy? And I said, I really don't think so. I said, however, here's Mike Tyson. We should be there. And they said, well, you know what? If you don't think he can lose the fight, we're just going to back off on this. So I wound up having a, I worked harder on that fight than if I had been in Japan because I was writing till four in the morning night of the fight. Because after the first round, I called the officer and said, I think he's going to lose tonight. Now here's the thing about Tyson. First round of the fight was always his best round. He lost the first round to Buster Douglas. You know, it's not going to get better. All right. I saw the same thing the 94 Holyfield the first time. I was sitting next to Jerry Eisenberg, you know, legendary, you know, he's in 22 Halls of Fame. He's a great writer. Holyfield beat up Tyson in the first round. I turned to Jerry and said, Tyson getting his ass fucking knocked out tonight because it doesn't get better from there. He starts here and goes down. He doesn't start here. Joe Frazier started down here and went up. Tyson starts here and goes, boom. So, you know, if you lose the first round, Mike, you ain't getting better. This is not your night. Tyson, uh, Tyson, not a fan of yours? Well, I don't think we're okay. I, I did a story with him. It's five years now. But in 2016, I did a 30th anniversary of his, his title. I mean, amazingly, 30 years had passed. 30th anniversary of his uh, title when he fought against Burbick. And I called him up and we had a great talk. And uh, then I saw him a couple of years later at Yankee Stadium, which was really funny. <clears throat> he was there for a signing and all the players were so excited to meet him. And Tyson didn't know a single person on the Yankees. And he kept coming over to me and saying, who's this guy? Who's that guy? Who's this guy? Oh, that's Alex Rodriguez. <laughs> that's Aaron Judge. That's <laughs> It was pretty funny because he's not really a baseball fan. But, I mean, yeah, I think we're okay. You know, the fact that he, um, he indulges in marijuana now helps. I think he's very mellow. Do you feel like you have an understanding of his sort of comeback? Like, Desiree Washington, I figured that was the end of him. He's almost like Trump in a way. A million different things happen to him. And you always think this in guy's way, done. Yeah. How do you explain the resiliency of Mike Tyson? He always finds somebody to bail him out. And that's also very Trumpian. He always seems to find somebody who's willing to, to, ba to bail him. I'm just always mystified by he does a one-man play on Broadway. People freaking love it. He, uh, he does an autobiography. People love it. You know, like, yeah. Interestingly enough, I was at the preview of that show. And it happened on center stage with Michael Kay. He had not done an interview in years. Michael Kay sits him down and they invited me. Yes Network invited me to come and watch the taping and write a column about it because I was at ESPN at the time. And uh, Tyson goes through this whole fucking psychodrama where he, he laughs, he cries, he screams, he, he does this whole shit with Michael Kay. And after that, somebody must have, well, I guess Spike Lee watched it and said, hey, Mike, you could take this thing to Broadway, you know, and, and he did. And it was the same exact thing that he did on, on center stage. And it, it was great. I mean, he really was good. And the funny thing was, you asked me if I'm okay with Tyson. This is 2010 or 11, I guess. He kept turning to me during the taping and say, Wally, you remember that? Do you remember when this happened? So I know that we're okay. We're okay. I mean, he hated me at some point in the 90s and I don't blame him. I mean, I was pretty rough on him. I was rough on him and he was getting, you know, he had people in his ear who didn't like me, like Don King. Um, so, I know, I understood that. But, you know, we've both grown up now. You know, I'm 64. He's 54. And, uh, you know, we're beyond all that. Now. Before we continue with Two Riders Singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my son, Emmett. And you seem really sad about Casey leaving for college this week. Dad? Yeah, I mean, she's your big sister. Bruh, I've been waiting to climb this ladder for far too long. I'm finally first string on the Royal Retro's ad totem pole. At long last, I can be the one telling people to visit royalretros.com for all their throwback needs. It's the e-dog's time to shine, play a pimp. I'm not sure how to tell you this, play a pimp. We just signed an exclusive five-year, 25 million deal with a family coach to be the new voice of Royal Retros. Yeah, sucker. But I just got my SAG card. I said this to someone the other day. I was a much meaner writer when I was younger. I never considered anyone's feelings. I never thought about they have to go home to their wife or husband. Absolutely. And, Absolutely right. Do you look back at your columns and think, are there moments yes. when you think, God, I was a real dick? All the time. 
And when I really realized this was when I became the Yankee beat, I learned so much on that Yankee beat and I was, you know, in my mid fifties, but I wrote something once every year. The Yankees have like a fifth starter competition. It's completely bullshit. And it's, you know, but it gives us something to write about in spring training. And um, David Phelps was one of their pitchers and he had pitched well in a game. And I wrote a column saying, you know, David Phelps is in the lead of, you know, for this thing. And I named a couple of other pitchers. David Phelps came up to me the next day in the club. I said, listen, man, you didn't put Adam Warren in there. I said, oh, he goes, you know, Adam's wife reads the paper and all. And, you know, Adam's part of this competition. And I said, you know, and I realized, I said, fuck me, you know, you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. I should have. And I went, to, I went over to Adam Warren and apologized. He said, what are you apologizing for? I said, because I left the end of the call because I don't worry about it. But I mean, I see what you meant. You know, at that point, I realized, you know, people are reading this. You know, Adam Warren's wife is reading this and I didn't put his name in and she probably thinks he's out of the competition. So, yes, yes, I think age does give you some perspective and, and also getting to know the athletes you cover better gives you perspective. And yeah, I, I don't write as tough as I used to. I, I mean, when, when somebody does something wrong, I will. I mean, I, I killed Phil Mushnick and Deadspin a couple of months ago. But, you know, like, I'm not going to kill a player because he doesn't perform well. You know? I mean, sports is, is, is a human endeavor. And guys are not going to be perfect. And they are going to make mistakes. You know, I will kill a guy if he does something, you know, if, if he's a domestic abuser, if he's a drunk, if he's not you know, doing the right things and that's causing him not to perform well. But if a guy goes over four and strands six runners, I'm not going to fucking kill him. It's part of the game. Deadspin, June 20th, 2020. <laughs> GTFOH, Phil Mushnick. And you wrote uh, Earth to Phil and Phil Mushnick, longtime media columnist and columnist in New York. Uh, Earth to Phil Mushnick. Professional athletes sometimes say the F word. So do most adults. So do so does the favorite pol uh, politician of the editorial pages of the New York Post, which has been publishing your get off my lawn routine for the past 30 years. Get over it, Gramps. This is the way people talk. And you know what? It's not that big of a deal. It's a lot less objectionable, for instance, in gassing peaceful protests or, or locking kids in cages. Maybe you just haven't gotten around to dealing with those issues yet. Maybe you should start with an easier one, like taking on President Trump for calling out NFL players who would dare take a knee on the national anthem. And this is about Pete Alonso, the Mets first baseman, who uh, I guess said fuck or something. I don't even know if he said it. I think he, he just like tweeted LFGM, which means let's fucking go Mets. And, and Phil clutched his pearls over that. Now, here's my, there's a little bit of a backstory. When I left the Post in 2002 over a censorship deal, you know, because I had, uh, we had a gossip columnist who wrote a blind item, which um, didn't mention Mike Piazza, but said that a famous New York ball player is gay and blah, blah, blah. And it was clearly pointed at Piazza. It was so clear that Piazza called the press conference the next day to deny he was gay. So I wrote a column saying, you know, he should never have had to do this press conference and it's our fault and they wouldn't write the column and a whole, you know, we had all, they wouldn't run the column. We had a whole fucking thing and I wound up quitting over it. Well, Phil Mushnick was a complete hypocrite, wrote, uh, you know, the next day, just ripped me in his column for calling out his newspaper. So since then, you know, like we do not talk. And luckily for Phil, he never leaves his couch because if he does, we would talk. So anyway, he gave me the perfect opening to write this thing. But I mean, his routine has gotten so fucking old. It really has. And I know it works with the demographic of the post, but it doesn't it doesn't work with me. And I, I doubt it works with you. It's very interesting because I, I was texting another friend of mine. Uh, I suspect mutual friend, Mike Vaccaro. Great guy. And I said, um, really is. my replacement at the post, by the way, I literally asked him. I asked him about you and he said he's the best, a legit tough guy. And yeah, he's and I said, definitely. And he said in the best way. I mean, it's literally the truth that I owe him my job. He quit over an integrity issue because they spiked a column of it. Um, I was a guy <laughs> who replaced. Right. No, he got that job on merit, man. He's fucking great. You know, I left the opening, but that's not why. I got Wait, so I'm interested in this. So basically a columnist for the Daily News writes a piece about Mike Piazza. Columnist of the Post. And Neil Travis, the gossip columnist. Oh, yeah. Neil Travis. I remember this, actually. Mike writes yeah, yeah. a thing that Mike Piazza. He's dead now, by the way. Wink, wink is gay. Piazza, I remember, held the press conference, the I'm not gay press conference. Exactly. You write a column saying what they did was bullshit. I write a column basically saying, fuck us. <laughs> Your paper won't run it. And you quit. Yeah. You know what? It was a mistake. It was a mistake. You know, <laughs> I was going to ask wife. you, was it a mistake? <laughs> oh, see, you can say my poor wife, you know, <laughs> I'm on the phone and I'm telling them, if you don't run this fucking column, I'm quitting tomorrow. If I wake up tomorrow morning, this column's not in the paper. I fucking quit. Right. So I slammed down the phone. I pick up the, the paper the next day. The column's not in there. 
I called Gallo. I said, I told the desk yesterday if this column wasn't in the paper, I quit. I fucking quit. I hang up. My wife's standing there. She goes, what did you just do? I said, I just fucking quit. <laughs> yeah, it was a mistake. And I'll tell you how I know it was a mistake. I mean, I was doing the radio show at the time, too, and I was going to be like a multimillionaire. I was going to be Stephen A. Smith because I had my column and I had the, the radio show. Now I only had the radio show. So about six months later, Dave Anderson writes a column about the Times hypocrisy toward the Masters in Augusta, and they spiked it. And Dave Anderson did not quit. Dave Anderson said, they're my bosses. If they don't want to run a column, it's fine. And I learned a lesson, and I had Dave on. And I said, you know what? You're right, man. You did the right thing. If Dave Anderson can swallow it, I should have swallowed it. Wait, how long after quitting did you think, shit, that was a bad idea? Probably 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Probably real quick. And I'll tell you what, I think it hurt me. I really do. I think I had, I think I've had a tough time getting a job ever since then because it follows you. You How do you mean? Oh, if we don't do what this guy wants, he's going to quit on us, you know, which is not the case, but I do think some people believe that. Can you actually see their side in not running your column? I do see their side, but I think it's extremely hypocritical. And I think it would have been courageous of them and it would have shown integrity to run the column, you know, and accept it and own it and say, you know what? Our guy did do this, but instead they sided with a gossip columnist over their, their sports columnist. And, you know, that still pisses me off, but I, I do think I should have handled it in a different way. Right. I should have said, okay, fine guys, you know, you know, let's just never have this again. Blah, blah, blah. And I should have kept my job. It was a dumb thing to do. I mean, there's no doubt about it, but it still does rankle me that they decided to die on that hill with fucking Neil Travis, who's a gossip columnist, you know, and, and is writing blind items rather than me who's out there every day you know, putting it all out there for them with my name on it and with their names on it. I, I think that was bad. And I think it was hypocritical of them. I really think they should have run the column. But, you know, I, should I have handled it differently? Absolutely. When you look around, like I really think of that time period in New York media, of you, of Kriegel, even say what you want, Lupica, Lisa Olson. When you see what it is now, what media is now, are you more, look, it changes and this is just the way of the world. Things change. Or are you like, God, it fucking sucks. Both. I mean, look, you know, it's going to change. As I told you, I saw this 35 years ago at Newsday. I saw the way they fucked the older guys, you know? So I, I should have known back then that it would happen to me at some point. So that's, you know, look, change is inevitable and they are going to go younger. And, you know, the demographic skews younger. And I understand that at the same time, I read some of these people and I'm not going to mention any names, but it's so clear that they write for access, that they write not to piss off their sources, that they write, you know, to please the fan base. I think social media has changed everything. Yeah. I think a lot of columnists are afraid to write a column that's going to get them ratioed. You know, God forbid, you know, God forbid, you know, a lot of people start ripping you on Twitter. You know, I, I think that has changed everything. And I think the economics of the business has changed everything. You know, I mean, like I said, Sports editor Daily News said to me, I can hire three college kids for what I have to pay you. Okay, hire your three fucking college kids. It's really grim. It's also interesting, the whole Twitter thing. Like, I was only covering for a magazine, so I did not have the day-to-day. -day. But, like, you wrote something bad about a person. Like, I did. I certainly did. John Rocker, Will Clark, different guys, right? Yeah, of course. You showed up. Like, you then showed up. You made Absolutely. sure you show up. That is Absolutely. That's 100%. Yeah. That does not exist. A lot of these people are writing from their fucking houses anyway, you know, so they never see the people they write about. I mean, you know, we'll go back to Phil Mushnick. When's the last time you saw him in a clubhouse? Right. If ever. Right. And, you know, the Internet has spawned all these bloggers and, you know, these these people with their hot takes who never face the people they're talking about. Right. And, you know, you and I are in there every fucking day. I remember seeing you at Chase Stadium when the Giants came in. Barry Bonds was there. It was right after you wrote the book. Yeah. Right. Remember that? Yeah, of course. And nobody would go up to Barry Bonds. And I'm not telling the story to make myself a hero, but I could not believe nobody was talking to Barry Bonds. So I just walked over him and I said, I never met the guy. I said, Barry, are you going to talk to us today? And he was shocked. He literally was shocked. He looked at me and said, yeah, I'll talk to you guys out in the dugout. Do you remember he, he had a press conference in the dugout? I do. At Chase Stadium. Yeah. But like nobody wanted to fucking ask him. I said, like, ask him. What's he going to do? He's going to beat me up. He's not going to do that. I don't think he's going to do that. If he does do it, big fucking deal. I asked him the question. Don't you think in a lot of ways, like the guiding question, like the, the big question that I think keeps us should be asked every time is like, what is the worst that can happen? You know, like what is the worst that can happen? The guy blows you off, punches you like, OK, I'm going to punch you. That's of course, not not. Gonna how, often, how many times that happened in your experience? 
the one I think of the famous one that I love is when uh, Will McDonough punched uh, Raymond. Right. Right. The reporter won that one. I mean, I'm telling you, it doesn't happen. Right. How often does it happen? These guys are not stupid. You know, most of them are professional. Even a guy like Albert Bell, who might have been a ticking time bomb, even he didn't want any part of this shit. He started yelling at me when I was being walked away. You know, they're not going to do that. Yeah, what, 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 the guy could yell at you? What, are you going to be embarrassed? Fuck that, man. I'd rather, I, I'm more, you know what? When I, I, I teach a journalism class now at Stony Brook, and I tell my, my students, you know what's a stupid question? You say, you don't want to ask questions because you think it might be stupid. What's really stupid is sitting down at your fucking typewriter or your, your laptop to write a story and saying, shit, I should have asked that question. That's yep. really fucking stupid. 100%. Right? Um, you needed a piece of information you didn't ask. Your, your current job, you are seeing sort of COVID up close and the impact of COVID. And yeah, yeah. yeah. What is that like? What's your day to day? Well, now my day to day, I'm a supervisor now. So I'm kind of like an editor and I don't really like it as much, quite honestly. I mean, I like to be in the middle of things. I started out as a contact tracer, which meant calling people, you know, maybe I would make 50 or 60 phone calls a day to try to interview people who had been in contact with COVID cases. And I found that, you know, you think that we're not qualified to do anything as a journalist. We don't know what the fuck, you know, we don't know anything. Well, we are qualified to do one thing. We're qualified to interview people. And I found out that I was really good at it, you know, and people would talk to me. And, you know, I, I would find a way to, to get them to, to just let me know where they've been, who they've been in contact with, where do they live. I could explain to them why you have to quarantine, why it's good for the community, why it's good for your family. And I must tell you, I was really fucking good at it. And I loved it. I loved calling people. Because I really felt like I made a difference. Yeah. You know, like people would say, thank you for calling and thank you for your help. And it's wonderful. I mean, now at this point, people are coveted out and they don't fucking want to pick up the phone at all. Now I supervise 15 contact tracers and it's a little bit different. It's more of a, it's more of a desk job. It's, it's an editorial job. But yeah, I do um, have to get involved at times when people refuse to, to comply when people are uh, seriously ill and need a 911 call or something, I get involved. And it, it does really, you realize this thing has not gone away. You know, it really hasn't. You know, I don't care what the politicians tell you. COVID is still here. COVID is still here. People are still getting it every day. We call, we make a lot of calls every single day. Right. So, yeah, I am in the middle of it. It's, it's, pretty, it's, it's pretty rough sometimes. It's pretty rough. I've had people who are scared to death, you know, of dying of this. Older people. I have older people who, who have no symptoms but just want to talk to somebody and they would ask me to call them every day just to make sure they're all right. I mean, no, those those things are really important to me. They, they're very rewarding to me. And I, re- I really enjoy this. I've been doing it 15 months now. And uh, obviously, we all want COVID to end. But at the same point, I, I really don't want the job then because I like it. Let me ask you the last question here. I've talked to Kriegel about this a couple of times. I feel like, again, I love guys. I'm a born New Yorker. Yeah, I live in California, but New York, you know, and I love New Yorkers. And um, we still we still claim you. I appreciate that. I do not understand people who do not see the con man that's Trump. Like, I feel like every New Yorker gets it 100 times over. Like, you don't have to take you eight seconds to see this guy's as a fucking comment. You know, I'll tell you something. First of all, I covered him back in the 80s when he was a casino boss. And um, I'm going to tell you two stories. When he wrote The Art of the Deal. Right. I didn't like the guy from the beginning. Just something about him just seemed oily and creepy. Right. So he's at a Tyson press conference and Bill Caton was just fucking Bill Caton was Mike Tyson's co-manager slobbering over Trump. He's introducing him at a press conference. He's saying he's a great hotel manager. He's a great casino boss. He's a big ladies man. And he's a great writer because he's at the top of the New York Times bestseller list. So that last one really rankled me because I know this motherfucker probably can't even read, you know, let alone write. So. I used to write a box. I wrote a boxing column and at the, you know, I'd have like a, a lead item, a secondary and third item. Then I'd have like a bunch of dot, dot, dots, which were just wise cracks. And they were a lot of times cheap shots, you know, people just for fun to amuse me. So this, after I get back from this press conference and I'm kind of sick, you know, from Bill Caton slobbering over Donald Trump, I write, I wonder how many of those books Donald Trump had to buy to put himself at top of the New York bestseller list. I just threw that in there. Okay. Next day, his fucking secretary calls me up. She says, how'd you know about the books? I said, I didn't know about the books. I just made it up. Wow. That's awesome. She goes, we have warehouses full of them. You know, he bought hundreds of thousands of them. So of course they gave me another item to write about it. So I knew he was a fucking fraud. This is like 1986. And, but then like six, seven years later, 
Um, and this is a diff- this is a Giuliani story actually. I'm in uh, California, I'm in LA for a De La Hoya fight, and one of the boxing writers in LA starts gushing about Rudy Giuliani, and he's America's mayor. And I'm like, do you know what kind of a fucking cocksucker this guy is? Yeah. Do you know? You know, and I told him about Patrick Dorismond, who you know. Uh, who was shot dead by undercover cops because he wouldn't buy drugs off them. And Giuliani decided to like let his high school records out there to show that he deserved to be shot by the cops, you know, or how they were manipulating a traffic light in the Bronx to get people to to pass a red light so they could give tickets. This guy's a fucking scumbag. So you ask me, how do people not realize this? Because if you're not here and you just see what they show you on television, Right. And they showed you Donald Trump with all these beautiful women and his great hotels and all this shit, of course. And you're watching The Apprentice. Right. If you're here in New York, you know, this guy's a fucking asshole and he's always been a fucking asshole. And same thing with Giuliani. You know, you see all the pride. You're living in L.A. You see the press conferences at the 9-11. You know, you don't realize what a racist scumbag this guy has been all his life. So oh. that's how you have to be here to see. It. It's infuriating. It uh, is infuriating. Let me ask you a final, final question. All sports. We take all sports. Who's your all-time favorite guy you covered? Who's your all-time least favorite guy you covered? It's got to be Tyson. Even when he wasn't pleasant, he was always interesting. And, you know, here's the thing. When we were writing this in the 80s and 90s, there was no internet. There was no Twitter. If you got beat on a story, you had to to eat it for 24 hours. You know? You had to fucking wake up in the morning, look at the other papers and go, I hope they don't have something I didn't have. I mean, now somebody has a scoop five minutes later, you're matching it. You're matching it or you're advancing it. Right? Because everybody puts it out there. But in those days, you woke up and you saw, well, Tyson was like that every single day. I would, you know, I'd look at the paper, you know, between my, with my fingers over my eyes because I wouldn't know if he had done something crazy and somebody else knew it and I didn't know it. So it was exhilarating to cover him. You know, and, and later on, A-Rod was, was similar to that. And I would tell you this, when I first started covering the Yankees, you know, somehow he knew I covered boxing. He comes up to me, he goes, what was it like to cover Tyson? I said it was like covering you only times 10, which is the truth. You know, Alex could do some crazy shit. You know, he'd be photographed with his shirt off in Central Park or he'd be coming out of Madonna's apartment at six in the morning. You know, it was kind of like Tyson, but Tyson was every single day. And it wasn't just, I mean, it was dangerous shit. I mean, mean, beating the crap out of his wife or driving into a tree or, you know, he he was crazy. So, I, I mean, you know, if you ask me who's the guy I enjoyed the most, you know, who's the nicest guy to cover? God, you know, I love Joe Frazier. I love Muhammad Ali. They were wonderful guys to cover. Right. Um, Tommy Hearns, loved covering him. But, you know, for every day, you know, get your juices going, it has to be Tyson. Well, Wally, man, I appreciate your time a whole lot. I, uh, blast, man. I've been an admirer for years. And again, your approach was always to me. It was like, I want to be like that. I'm not like that, but I always wanted to be like that. So, uh, well, yeah, I can't uh, tell from the stuff you write, man. It's really, it's really good. And, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what approach you take. If you know what you're doing, you know, you get it done. I want to thank today's guest, Wallace Matthews, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Wally on Twitter at Oyster Bay Bomber. And for Christ's sake, get vaccinated. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Writers Slinging Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and leaving a nice review. I make zero dollars for doing this, and I depend on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.